Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Josh Adams, and on our panel today, we have myself, Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. And Lars Vick. Hello. And joining us today, we have absolutely no one. It's a panel discussion. Alex, what are we talking about today? All right. So with ElixirConf going on, Bruce, Stephen, and Sophie are, are hard at work at trainings. So it's just the three of us. So we're actually going to kick off the discussion talking about conferences. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Kind of talk about the last conference everyone attended. I think unfortunately this year, everyone has been staying home. So not a lot of in-person conferences. But yeah, I mean, personally, the last conference I went to was ElixirCon, I think it was 2018 in Seattle. That one, uh, that was a good one. I like that one. Was anybody else on that one? I was there. That was great. The last conference I went to was the Big Elixir 2019. Uh, also very good regional conference in New Orleans. People should go if they get a chance. I've always wanted to visit New Orleans. My last one would be Codebeam Stockholm, I think. I think that was after ElixirConf EU Prague. Yeah, I think so. ElixirConf EU Prague, I could definitely recommend, but I don't think ElixirConf EU will be revisiting Prague very shortly. It moves around as far as I understand. Yeah, I always wanted to... Oh, go ahead, I went to ElixirConf when it was... uh, ElixirConf EU when it was in Poland, and that was a lot of fun. Poland? Yeah, I always wanted to make the flight out there, but with two kids at home, it's it's never an easy sell to the missus to say, hey, I'm leaving for, uh, you know, leaving for a week. Good luck, have fun, see ya. So... Usually I <laughs> I try to go to the local conferences or, or stay stateside. At some point, I will have to hop over the pond to hit an Elixir Conf or similar in the US. And then I will have to do that very sell <laughs> to, to the missus. But well, this year, I will be going to Elixir Conf US or US, I guess. It's the virtual one. So it does make it a lot more convenient for me. I went to the first ElixirConf in person and I went, I really, really used to enjoy going to Erlang Factories or Erlang Factory Light in San Francisco. Those are really, really good conferences if you get a chance to go to the Erlang Factory. But I would have been really devastated if like the first ElixirConf had been remote. That's where I got to meet lots and lots of people. And I, I met, I talked to Bruce in person the first time at that conference. It was, it was really good. So I definitely feel a lack from the missing in-person conferences. But I also, I really appreciate the idea of a remote conference and want them to be more prevalent, but I don't think they replace in-person conferences. That's a good old, uh, good old trade-offs they get you every time. I mean, the, the nice thing is that the fact that it is remote, anybody from anywhere around the world can go, but you do, you do miss that in-person interaction. It's, it's a different experience. So for, for anyone who's attending ElixirCon virtually for the first time, when all this craziness kind of calms down, I would definitely suggest going to an in-person conference and and kind of witnessing the vibe and the energy there. It's it's, it's quite nice. Yeah, it's definitely a different thing. My first my first beam related conference was ElixirConf EU in Prague, and going there and actually meeting a bunch of the people from the community drove me 
way deeper into the community than I than I was committed to being at the time. Um, I got some help with code review for uh, for actually for the Inky library, which turned out to be my first my first visible contribution to the Elixir community, and I spoke to a lot of people that were were fairly inexperienced and a bunch of people that have been working with Elixir and Erlang and that sort of thing for a long time. The speakers were accessible. <laughs> we we actually went to a dinner before ElixirConf, before it started, and just ended up talking to Michał Muskala, or <laughs> I always pronounce his name as if it's Finnish, but I think it's Polish. But he's he's on the Elixir core team, but he's a very, very humble guy. So he did not mention this. Took It took a few hours of dinner and wine before it's like, yeah, 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 this guy's on the core team. It's like, huh? Oh, oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it's a nice, it's a nice crowd. And I, I like that there's a fair bit of, a fair bit of people both in EU and in the US. It seems like there's a fair presence in like, at least in Japan, and I hope that there's there's something for people over like in Australia and that sort of thing as well. There's definitely a lot of stuff going on down in Kenya, I imagine, or from from Bruce. He's been talking about that. So there seems to be a decently good distribution of of where people are at. You know, I saw pictures of an Elixir, either an Elixir conference or an Elixir section of another larger conference in India that had just a, a massive amount of people there. Nice. And it definitely seems like the community is growing both stateside and internationally. I mean, it's it's quite nice to see, like on Hacker News every month, actually today's the first that we're recording this. I'm curious to see how many job postings there are for you know, Elixir positions on the who's hiring. That's That's usually a good litmus test to see how things are. Are, are catching on in the, in the job market. But yeah, no, it's definitely growing and it's it's exciting to see more and more opportunities sprout up and more conferences sprouting up, more meetups. It's nice. Yeah, I think it certainly helps that as far as I know, Jose is based on the, in the European time zone and we have like Chris McCord and the, a lot of the Ruby people seem to be based in the US and then like Erlang is from Sweden. So the distribution... It doesn't end up being all Silicon Valley or all on a particular coast of the U.S. or anything. So there's a decent spread by default, basically. I think that's nice. But I'm curious, has the current change into all the major conferences going virtual changed with conferences you're going to this year? And are you going to any of the virtual ones? I have not attended any virtual conferences this year. I've attended nothing virtual or in person since the big Elixir. I will certainly be watching the videos from ElixirConf. One of the one of the issues I have with the virtual conferences, because I have little faith in the hallway track being remotely as high bandwidth as in-person conferences tend to be, I don't personally know that I'm going to see a lot of benefit from syncing my schedule to the conference versus watching stuff after the fact. And I feel like that can only make the the hallway track worse, but it may be solved with scale and I may be being kind of stupid. Yeah, I'm taking kind of a similar approach. I figure I could just go back on, you know, whether YouTube or whatever and, and watch all the, uh, the talk as opposed to trying to take a day or two off of work and crunch in a whole bunch of videos and 
it's more of a, a scheduling problem than anything else. But yeah, I haven't exactly decided how my attending will will happen this year, or for ElixirConf US because it is my first chance to to sort of attend ElixirConf US, and I would like to try to hit some of the hallway track activities, especially just to give virtual a virtual hallway track a fair shake. I did drop into some meetup a while back and just joined joined a discussion in a breakout room. And the threshold is definitely a little bit higher and the feeling a little bit more awkward to just pipe up and get on a microphone in a room with an arbitrary number of people. But at the same time, I think it's worth worth giving it a shot because it's it is what we have right now. I'm not sure how I'll figure out scheduling exactly because it will eat all of my evening. But for for the conferences that are in my time zone, I do plan to to try to attend them as fully as possible. During ElixirConf EU, my daughter was had just been born. So I hit those as VODs most of the time, unless she was sleeping. And I didn't really do any hallway track activities. But I, I hope to try some more of the social stuff with the coming conferences. So the ones I'm looking at are ElixirConf US and Codebeam V that's coming up. Are there any talks from this ElixirConf that are of particular interest to you? I'm just looking at the list right now. I think I'm really excited to see what Luke says about Lumen because I know Lumen has been under work now for a little while. So it would be Curious to see how that project is evolving. You know, perhaps they've they've got some projects in production. You know, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. Sounds sounds pretty interesting. It seems like there's also a couple of of nerves uh, talks. There's one by Daniel Lindemann, short circuit IoT development time with nerves. So it'll be really interesting to see what what he's got to say about his nervous experience. But yeah, it seems like a pretty pretty stacked presentation list. I am interested in Thomas Despierre's talk just because I've I've known that guy from the community from various programming communities for a long time and I've always really appreciated what he had to say. So seeing the full talk from him seems like something I would enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I can speak a little bit to the Lumen thing. I know that they don't have a lot a lot of projects in production unless they are sneaking under under the like behind the curtains a lot with it because I, I follow that channel almost religiously and it's still mostly about figuring out compiler compiler bugs and making it live up to beam compatibility, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm I very interested. I do know in that the they're planning on showing some some good stuff. I don't know exactly what... But I've spoken a bit to Luke about what could be a good demo for for what they're planning. So I, I know some stuff. I shouldn't shouldn't spoil it though. This this episode will probably air after he's shown it off. So I'm sure he showed some very interesting stuff. I look very much forward to seeing it. We also have a very interesting talk by our very own Sophie De Benedetto, instrumenting Phoenix 1.5 with telemetry and the live dashboard. So that'll be that'll be a nice talk. I'm guess she wrote. Was it a series of, of blog posts on Elixir School regarding that topic? But yeah, that should be an interesting one. I find 
just kind of branch away from conferences for a little bit. I do find live dashboard and telemetry to be a really, really compelling pairing for monitoring your apps. You know, having used you know, Prometheus and InfluxDB, Grafana, and all those kind of tailor-made monitoring uh, tools, live dashboard and telemetry really, really lowers that barrier to entry. So you can get some sense of monitoring of your application without a lot of work. And I think that, I think that's a great, great addition to the ecosystem tool-wise. And the fact that you could just mix Phoenix new and it's all there for you and you literally have to do nothing. Yeah, I feel like telemetry especially is kind of an unsung hero just because if you want to do the stuff that telemetry enables, it has made your life 95% easier than it often is. Absolutely. We're using, we, we just started introduced telemetry in a product we're working on, and it was pretty trivial to get pretty good information. Yeah, it's kind of funny. For a lot of my blog posts where like the, the core bit from the blog post is to show implementation A versus implementation B and then show the numbers to compare those two, I would always have to go through the spiel of setting up, uh, who was it? I can't remember the, the package maintainer. I can't remember now. The guy who wrote the Prometheus X library. But I always have to go through the same spiel of setting it up for the purposes of the blog post, which would take like half the blog post. And then I would get into the meat of it versus now I just, you know, mix Phoenix new, boom, you got a live dashboard. And it's so much easier for me now to, you know, kind of guide the reader and say, hey, these are the performance characteristics of implementation A. Let's let's make some changes, and I'll look at the performance uh, characteristics of implementation B. But yeah, I, I like that a lot. Makes my my job as a blog writer a lot easier. Yeah, I I figure the live dashboard solves maybe somewhere around the eighty to ninety percent use case for a lot of like we just need a graph to see if it's broken and how broken it is, and then I find it interesting to all the tools that are being built up in Elixir that are sort of in your application embedded solutions to, to things that generally you would use something dedicated for. So we have like older Erlang stuff like Amnesia and Etz. And so we have some data, data storage. You don't really need Redis for for most Elixir applications. Um, and if you just need a bog standard, super simple database, you have a few different options already in OTP. And I uh, I imagine most of you have seen, or both of you, there's not that many of us, um, have seen the Sasha Yurik's post about Let's Encrypt, where he replaces CertBot with some some elixir tooling instead and i look forward to seeing that trend grow where most of what your application is doing also includes all the stuff you need to do for your application where you don't actually have to set up like nginx and certbot something to restart all the things and basic database and you can embed a lot of that inside elixir and elixir is or the beam is good at keeping things running for you, which is usually one of the concerns about putting all your eggs in one basket. But this is a pretty good basket. Yeah, I like I like the way you said it. I've I think it's really valuable for smaller projects to have the ability to put all those eggs in the basket because it is a good basket. 
on larger projects, I have found that basically the dependencies I care about. So like you mentioned, live view for monitoring. All of the big projects that I work on already have a Grafana and Prometheus set up or something akin to it. And so just using telemetry to pipe stuff to existing stuff is high value. But if you don't have it, then not having to set it up is a huge win. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, as as Lars was talking, about, it reminded me of Sasha Yurek's table from Elixir in Action, the first edition. I think it's also in the second edition, where he has in column one, kind of like your existing stack, you know, using like Node or Ruby or whatever. And he lists out you need like Redis for this, for caching, you need Nginx for this, and you know, so on and so forth, listing out all these tools. And then on the other column, you know, Erlang and the Beam are just kind of jotted down for every row because that's all you need to do a lot of these things. And yeah, it kind of not not to not to bag on on Redis too bad, but anytime I see Redis anywhere in like a technology stack where the Beam is running, it's usually like an architecture smell for me. I don't know about you guys, but there are so many facilities within the Beam to do what Redis does, but closer to your application and not having to make network hops and you know, kind of eliminating points of failure that most of the time you could just nix it and replace it with something so much simpler within the application. And, and better usually. So I, I agree for like 80 to 90% of the usage of Redis that usually you can get a better thing in Elixir with less dependencies that is just fundamentally better. We had a just an LRU cache that we kept running on all the nodes and we talked to them using Swarm and we made sure they had the stuff they needed. and you know, that's typically better than going out to Redis, but not not dramatically so. Like it's not a crazy smell. And Redis is a certainly reliable thing you can use. Where Redis is super beneficial is when you're not using it as a cache and you're using it for like set operations and set math. So my, my co-founder had a fairly big project where they just leveraged Redis's set math abilities to get, get something out there really quickly that scaled really dramatically well. And for those cases, like, yeah, it's a really good tool for that. If it's just a cache, we have caches in the beam that you can use. I just noticed there's talk on schedule for ElixirConf that is the joy of an Elixir monolith, which sounds like it might be up right up this conversation's alley. Um, Stephen Bussey or Busey, I don't, I don't know exactly what the pronunciation is, but he's going to talk about Bussey, that. as far as I know. So we'll be seeing majestic monoliths in Elixir. To steal DHH's terminology. I guess so. So back to the Elixir Comp Talks question. There's a talk by Jeffrey Utter on debugging live systems on the Beam. And I expect that talk to be really interesting because the Beam is an incredibly mature language for specifically doing production debugging and profiling and that sort of stuff. And most people that just kind of got into the Beam through Elixir and haven't done a production system at scale yet probably are unaware of the incredibly robust tool set available. And like me, I I had not needed to use Recon until I did. And once I did, it helped me find like a nearly infinite loop that shouldn't have been in the system that was dragging down the app servers. And short of profiling, I don't really know how I would have called it. Yeah, I was I was gonna mention Recon as well. I've I've had a I'm sure every you know everyone who's run a a production B map has their like their war stories, but mine was I was using Observer CLI and Recon to track down actually a memory leak between some gen stage pipelines. What was happening was the payload coming through the gen stages was bigger than the, I forget the binary limit, where 
as opposed to being on the processes, like in the processes memory space, it's in the, the global memory space. But in any case, our, our processes were leaking large binaries. And the funny thing was during the daytime, you know, periodically we would go into, we would use recon to reclaim all the binaries just to get the service to limp along, you know, until the evening when no one was using it. And then we would, you know, we, we deployed a fix. But yeah, between Observer CLI and Recon, we were able to introspect the app, find exactly what process was was leaking the binaries, and you know, limp it along until we could we could swap it out for an implementation where the the problem was fixed. So, yeah, just echoing echoing your sentiment there, Josh. It's a insanely introspectable runtime and. Yeah, these tools are, are ridiculously useful. Yeah, I think Quinn Wilton might have the most like click driving talk topic because type safe live view with gleam. That's that's sure to get anyone that likes shiny things <laughs> to check it out. It's yeah, I'm I'm really curious about gleam. I haven't invested any particular time in it. But I, I'm glad to see people are looking at like interoperating with, with that and Elixir. And I think, I think there might be more to that talk than than just the latest shiny. Just because of, I, I imagine there are some challenges bridging over between Gleam and Elixir, or at least some abstractions to keep track of. Yeah, I'm interested in that one as well. I'm kind of curious what that interop story looks like. I, I know there have been a couple of blog posts that have shown that you know, it's it's relatively easy. But yeah, I'm curious to see how that talk goes as well. It'd be interesting to see if Gleam becomes more of a tool for like kind of your hot paths in your code where you need that type safety. And then you, know, you, you use Elixir you know, or Erlang or whatever for, for other parts of your system. So it would be... It'll be interesting to see how that interop story goes and how you can leverage Gleam in an existing kind of Beam application. Yeah, hooking it into Live View to give me something that feels more like more like my beloved Elm, but from a uh, you know, from a UI perspective specifically, in an Elixir app seems like something I would just absolutely get behind. Yeah, I think Gleam was uh, they just launched a new or released a new version. I think it's what 0.11 is the most recent release. By the way, we should probably get Lewis on the show at some point and, and pick his brain on, on Gleam and, and see where it's at and where it's going. That would be a, that would be a fun talk. 100% yeah, behind sure. this. Speaking of LiveView, I know I've been working with LiveView pretty heavily the past few weeks, and I'll I'll divulge kind of my, my learnings. But Lars, any LiveView stuff from you? Probably the reverse. I will hopefully be making a blog post about some of the stuff I've been working on for side projects recently. And it specifically dwells on very, very dead views. <laughs> I, I have been working on some stuff that's, that's strictly about statically generated forms and, and doing some interesting stuff to make, make working with those easier for a very particular project. And some of the more general parts, I I hope to release or at least preview soon. But I've also been looking, people who follow me on Twitter might have seen that I was asking people about lightweight JavaScript libraries for progressive enhancement and that sort of thing. So what I'm looking at is generating 
a very static UI and then progressively enhancing it while maintaining that it does not require JavaScript. So I'm on the way other side at the moment. I, I hope I will be doing some live view in the near future as well. I'm not opposed to it, but this particular project is opinionated in some ways. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Yeah, I've been I've been playing around with specifically Live View and Alpine. I think Alpine kind of ticks your, the the box for that progressive enhancement. But I've run into some interesting cases, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll do some live architecture and and un, un, you know uncover how wrong I am here. So hopefully we can hopefully we could do that. But I've been trying to use a lot of Live Redirects, so it's more of like a PJAX site along with Alpine. And one of the things I discovered was if your view that you're redirecting to, so if you do a like a live redirect and the view that you're live redirecting to has a script tag in there, that script tag won't actually be evaluated. And those like page specific script tags won't ever be loaded, which means that you can't have page specific JavaScript and use live redirects, as, as far as I understand it. And I think, I think this was echoed by Chris McCord on his talk here, what's new in live view, where he was saying that anytime you need page-specific JavaScript, use a regular link as opposed to like a live, a live redirect or something. So I'm kind of curious, like has anyone encountered those problems? Any, any thoughts? Maybe I should stop being stubborn and stop trying to use live redirect and scripts at the same time. But I, I kind of want that SPA feel without the, the baggage of an SPA. So any thoughts? Well, for uh, to just briefly touch back to the conference thing, there is literally a talk about live view and Alpine JS on schedule. But other than that, I mean, for that single page application feel, when you have very, very static views, as I have, I've been finding Unpoly to be pretty nice. It really, really doesn't have a lot of opinions about your code. But no, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you about script tags and live view. I have not dove that deep. Josh, anything? What what I have done in similar cases, I ran into a similar class of problems with Turbolinks. For instance, some paths to the payment processing on a page would get you into a situation where the payment processing wouldn't work, but not any of the easy paths. And it was just because of JavaScript running twice, I think, in that case. But so my general solution to problems like this is to ship a bundle that has the code that I want to run on that page and evaluate, you know, execute a function that instantiates the page once I know that its state is, is where it would need to be rather than depend on a script tag in the case where you're doing something PJAXy. That's been my only 
sort of thing that I've solved a similar problem before, but I haven't run into it with a lot of people. Yeah, I was thinking about going down a similar path where it's like maybe, yeah, maybe the bundle has like idempotent operations. So even if it's applied twice, you're not going to have any kind of unforeseen like side effects or consequences. But yeah. I'm still I'm still playing around with these ideas, and I mean, hopefully they lead to a good conclusion that I can hopefully present to yeah to our our listeners and and whatnot to kind of guide people down the right path. Or everyone can tell me how wrong I am and give me a better solution, which would be ideal. So I don't know about your problem, but I was going to mention my live view experience lately, which has consisted largely of Bruce has given a couple of talks to the Birmingham Elixir Meetup, which uh, I and a couple other people started in Birmingham, Alabama, to sort of be a regional Elixir Meetup and see if we can't join forces with the other regional Elixir groups and you know get get something bigger going. And anyway, so he's he's done a couple of these live view, live coding things. It's been really nice for me to see people that don't know anything about live view learning it. And also seeing Bruce do stuff in live view is fun. And then separately, I built a live view application for my Pine phone that lets me turn on and off the, the flashlight, which is a very trivial application to build, but it still brings me great joy. And I can build the release and run it and it boots up with system D and all that jazz and it's just there. So that's that's my only live view experience of late. That's pretty cool. Didn't you also write the same app with Scenic? Or am I remembering something else? I know you're playing uh, Scenic, I did, right? I did get Scenic running on the Pine phone. I would like to pursue it more. As it stands, the thing doesn't run in full screen. Somebody's got a patch somewhere that can make it sort of run in full screen. But the window is like offset by like 40 pixels each way. And the resolution isn't exactly right. And I decided I didn't want to spend the probably two days it would take me to actually figure out what the crap was going on. Uh, so like text rendering is kind of garbage because it's it's like it's scaled up 2x or something. I don't know why it wasn't. But it does work and it could be made to work and be reliable, I'm I'm certain. But I ended up deciding, okay, well, I don't want to... Like, if I had spent another two days and gotten the app working, then my demo still would have sucked, right? Because it would have been bad font scaling and, and whatnot. So I decided, hey, I'll do this with LiveView because somebody on the Slack channel for our, for our city mentioned, hey, you should do it in LiveView. And I said, you know what? Challenge accepted. Very cool. On the Pine phone, what operating system do you run? I imagine it's... Is it a specific Linux distro or, or will any Linux distro do? I'm just getting nerves here. I run Arch Linux on my phone and then I've pushed up my glasses for official nerd cred. But yeah, so I run Manjaro. There's a there's a bunch of operating system choices. So the version that I got shipped with Ubuntu Touch, like just the straight up UB ports, Ubuntu Touch, it's a fine experience. It's not the straight Linux that I want. There's a thing called Mobian, which is Debian, but out of the gate, good for mobile devices. It really only targets the Pine phone right now, I think. So I like I like that conceptually, but I haven't used it because I'm a I'm an Arch guy. I like specifically because I like being able to go to the Arch Wiki, which is like the best Linux doing stuff on your desktop computer resource that exists. And you know whatever is suggested there is actually the thing that will work. And I like staying on like the bleeding edge to the point that it hurts me. So being able to use Arch and have packages like that just follow Git is entertaining to me. So I do that and it works. It's it's super fine. I've got KDE Connect running on the thing so I can control the audio on my desktop from my phone or on my phone from my desktop and, and all that jazz. I also played with VGTK, which is a Elm-style declarative framework for building GTK applications in Rust that Bodle wrote. 
and it's it's a fantastic experience. And it was also my first like substantial IE. I spent two days actually writing Rust the whole time. Uh, Rust experience and it was it was enjoyable. Yeah, Rust has been on my list for a little while. I'm waiting for the the Rust in Action book to get published by Manning. I figure when that book gets published, Rust will be at a pretty stable point. It seems like they're like they have a pretty aggressive release cycle, and new features keep on getting added and changed. And maybe this is just my perception from the outside. Maybe it's you know you know super stable and hasn't changed much from the inside view. But I'm uh, I'm from the outside, so I figure once the book gets published, that'll probably be a good time to sit down, consume the material, and perhaps some of the churn that I'm, I'm seeing from the outside will have been sorted out. My current thinking on building phone apps is I want to have a Phoenix GraphQL release that's you know, packaged as a dependency, a systemd service dependency, and then probably this Rust GTK front end. This, I say phone apps, I mean specifically for my Linux phone, because I've had that experience before in production, done the, G, the, the GraphQL Phoenix thing locally and talk to it from the UI. So I just had to think about the UI from the UI layer. And it was really, really good experience. And I expect doing that with VGTK instead of Qt will be a much better experience because I do not care for Qt. I've been looking more towards Flutter recently. I was deeply interested in Scenic for a long, good while. But I find that Scenic has... It's fairly slow moving at this point, and it seems like Boyd is is dedicated to some very serious scope of projects. From if I'm to infer from his Elixir Conf EU talk, so I don't expect like the feature depth of the Scenic and the full featuredness of it to grow that much in the near term. And I know that Connor Rigby and Frank Hunleth have been working on making Flutter run well on nerves. So I'm I'm pretty curious about what that could mean and whether it's feasible to make nerves do most of the running for for a phone. Because that that seems like a sweet deal to me. Yeah, I would be super interested in that. The only reason I'm not doing Flutter on the Pinephone is because the Flutter Linux desktop embedding is not built for ARC64, and I don't, I don't want to. It'll take a long time. It'll probably work just fine. That's fair. So for I, do, I prefer those... Flutter for for Android and iOS apps. Flutter is amazing. I think it's really, really good, and I like it. For those of us unfamiliar with Flutter, is it like you're rendering the app inside of a web view, or is it actually just compiled down to native and it's got? They use. Like an... It's different than than you think. So they use Skia to do canvas graphics. They have widgets that are like pixel-perfect representations of the platform widgets, as far as I know, and, and they've got the resources to get it right. And it looks really good, but they, re- they render with a canvas. They do, you have native stuff. You also, if you want to interact with the native platform in a way that isn't already offered to you, you can just write some native code and use something that's equivalent to Elm ports so you just basically give an interface to to talk back and forth to this thing between Flutter and the native side, and then you you know, you would build the the same port interface for iOS and Android, and then from there you can do whatever you want, and it's you know, just up to you. But it is really really fast. There's really good talk from the Flutter I/O last year, where they discussed the rendering models versus say React Native in great detail, and it's it's good. Like the performance has never been. 
I've had React Native apps where I had to spend serious engineering time fixing performance problems, granted caused by us, but fixing them a lot of time. And on Flutter, I've had zero performance issues at all. I don't know if Lars, if you've run into it, but you know, I've built more comprehensive Flutter apps than I did React Native. And I've never thought, gosh, why am I spending time solving this performance problem? I haven't had a good excuse to dive into Flutter for real. So I haven't built anything with it. But from what I gather, the stuff you're saying about Skia and canvases, the simplest explanation I've heard is that it basically renders down to whatever OpenGL or Vulkan or whatever underlying stuff that's fast and native to the device that, that it's supposed to do for graphics. So yeah, it's it's supposed to be fast. It doesn't do any web web in between stuff and that seems that seems like the right approach to me because I'm turning into a very old man that doesn't like web stuff in his natives and all that. I'm just shouting at clouds about performance these days. It's it's slightly I'm, disappointing. I'm gonna have to give this a whirl in that case. I thought it was I thought it was I was under the impression that it was just another like web view and, and an intermediary layer. So like a React native competitor, but now I'll, I'll give sounds it sounds way more compelling now. I'll give it the very rapid sell just to get you over any humps that remain. All right. So it's using the Dart programming language, which is think of it as like a more modern Java with fewer libraries written. But it's it's very good compiler experience. And then as far as like actually building your UI, you're just building a tree. So like you have one root element that contains elements as children. They have to be typed properly. And you just build the tree from there, either directly or programmatically. And then it does the virtual diffing that you expect. Pretty cool. It has been added to the to-do to list. All right. So I have a question for each of you. So my question is, what was your favorite side project in the last year? Yeah, I can go first. It's not going to be super exciting, but my favorite one from the last year has been a library that I wrote that's called Unplug. First, because I think it's a really cool name. I was surprised it wasn't take hex. But secondly, because it solved a serious problem that I had where anytime I had a production Elixir app running in a container orchestration system, so whether it was Nomad or Kubernetes or whatever, Every time that requests would come into, you know, health check, that stuff would get logged because of plug.telemetry. And then usually running in no matter Kubernetes, I'd also have it paired with Prometheus. So you'd also get the metrics endpoint logs showing up. And all the DevOps people were always upset because calls to slash metrics and calls to slash health, health check were polluting all the logging system. And if you've administered an elk stack before you know that the the memory usage of those jvm apps is is killer so unplug came from a a real problem that i had where i needed to conditionally evaluate whether to actually have a plug run or not and so that's where unplug came from was that that problem of at runtime or even at request time for given the current construct coming in do i run this plug or not and uh, that was my, it, it, like I said, it's a small, a small project, but uh, I love the fact that I don't have to worry about this problem anymore now, anywhere I go. Yeah, and it, it is a real problem that needs solving. It can mess up all kinds of metrics. Yeah, I think my favorite side project is still not actually public, but I, I've been complaining on my blog a little bit about 
WordPress, which which could seem like it doesn't follow from having an Elixir blog, but or mostly about Elixir. But I did do some work for actually for the Swedish state, basically, where there was a WordPress project that needed to be stabilized and like it was part of the corona response effort this was not my side project this was work but it, it was important that the site stay up but it was built on wordpress and i wanted to build a solid like devops style workflow where whenever there's dev changes they can be rolled out smoothly no one has to be worried no one has to have a panic fit um and meanwhile, people on the production side, the editors and authors, were going to be putting info on the site because that's what the CMS part of the CMS is. And it turns out that merging a dev environment and a production environment with WordPress is an unsolved problem, which surprised me. I thought it would be better than it was at that but I, I know this has been a problem historically with anything that follows that model of all your config lives in your database. There's usually very odd and specific tooling, like I know Drupal has this. But basically, the most popular CMS in the world, WordPress, doesn't really work for a sort of DevOps workflow where you have different environments and development work is separate from from content work, which I find disappointing and frustrating, potentially something that could be solved. So I've been I've been working on, let's say, a solution for that, and I'm really keen on starting to show more of it. Uh, so now I guess I've I've spoiled some of the fun, and uh, we'll have to start unveiling things soon. But there's a lot of a lot of interesting thinking on how to resolve issues on the right side like if there's a conflict between content and, and configuration or a conflict between changes made by for example editors and a change made by developers i think the developers should be the ones to resolve the conflict because they are generally the people that know what that kind of conflict entails and like trying to shift the responsibilities and resolve these types of situations is what I'm looking at and trying to make something that's also a lot more performant than WordPress is by default. WordPress is very dynamic by default, and I don't think that's the way forward. So yeah, I, I've been I've been cooking on something, but it's not it's not live yet. Yeah, very so good. I was I was gonna initially do my blog in, in WordPress just because that's the quickest thing to get up and running. But I decided to give Hugo a go. Pun intended, and it's 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 turned out quite well. Pair, pairing Hugo with Netlify, I mean the deployment time is, I mean from from a push to master, it's probably live within 30, 40 seconds. Then it's nice just working in raw HTML, CSS, and like vanilla JavaScript snippets here and there. So it's it's been a good experience for, I think for that blogging kind of market segment it's a good experience yeah that's perfect for developers the ss like static site generators are very well suited for people that already know development workflows now i'm glad you said hugo because guess what is powering what i'm building i don't want to reinvent theming and all the concepts of content for a for a site 
So I need to get you on a testing list shortly. I like the sounds of that. Josh Huber saying? Oh, I, I, oh yeah, I was going to say, I, uh, I can't go without mentioning Elm Pages in a static site generator discussion just because I love it. And I need to maintain my history of always bringing up Elm as much as possible. You have a complex sort of set of things you like because from what I understand, part of the deal with using Arch Linux is that you have to mention that you use Arch Linux. It's true. It's, and, in, the, it's in the end user license agreement. Yeah, and Elm has the same thing, right? No, Elm I, Elm, I just do it out of the love in my heart. Okay. You don't happen to be vegan because I know that that's a thing for, for us vegans. We, we need to mention that. So now I think I've done my duty and mentioning, yes, I'm vegan. It usually comes yes. up in dinner situations. but Yes, the, the joke about, you know, how someone, you know how you know when someone uses Elm, they'll tell you is probably accurate. Yeah, it goes, it honestly goes for a lot of things in tech. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing, well, actually, here's a question for you, Josh, since you're the Elm uh, connoisseur. Do you have to put the commas on the left-hand side? I mean, technically, no. The parser will handle it just fine. But if you work with another Elm developer who runs Elm format, you don't really have to worry about it because their editor will fix it for you when you did the wrong dumb thing. That's a, that's a matter of opinion. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's a, it's a well-thought-out thing. It's a thing that actually tripped up. My, my co-founder hated it initially, just the way it looked. And then he got to see some diffs and appreciate, oh, yes, actually, that's a better diff than yeah, so that's... it came around. I'll definitely his agree big, with the diff argument. But his big just, problem is the four space tab thing. So he's really, really put off by four spaces in a tab. Oh, you have to do four spaces? Oh, again, it's just part of the part of the Elm format, as far as I know. We'll just make it four spaces. But also, it's correct. When you're writing Elm code, it's just correct. It's how it's supposed to look. It's correct. All right. Maybe, maybe I'll give it, a, give it a whirl and see how I feel about it. But yeah, the, be- the it, beauty just... is you don't have to think about any of this stuff. Just get Elm format in your editor and in your CI workflow and write whatever code you want. And your editor will fix the things that you did and make your code beautiful. I, so, I'm a huge, for this I'm a episode of, of Elm Mix, let's transition into picks, shall we? Yeah. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. I'll go first. I'm going to repick, or I'm going to pick the thing I already mentioned, which is VGTK. And again, if you want to build GTK applications in Rust, which you probably do, right? It's, it's a thing to use if you care about doing that declaratively. All right, I'm done. I thought you were going to say it. Nah. All right, for mine, uh, I'll also do the same thing. I'll repick something that I mentioned earlier in passing. Chris McCord's talk at ElixirConf EU Virtual, What's New in Live View? That's definitely a good, a good watch. And I think it was published a couple months ago now. But it helps bring you up to speed if it's been a little while since you've read or seen any Live View material. It gives you a good sense of where... Where the library stands right now, what what can you do with it? What are some some best practices and, and stuff like that? So definitely definitely recommend it. Yeah, I can go for Oban, which is I've finally had a reason to just dive into and uh, and get familiar with Oban for some for some actual work, and it seems very promising from what I see. Just looks like it solves most of what you could possibly want from from that kind of job processing. And I'm really keen on actually seeing and trying the web and pro stuff, which is an interesting approach to trying to sustain that kind of more complex 
Elixir library project. So very keen on on diving further into Oban. Yeah, I've used Oban in production once and it worked beautifully. And that's my only knowledge of it. All right. So I think that wraps us up. We will very quickly go through and ask Lars if people wanted to keep up with you, where could they follow you on, say, Twitter or whatnot? So I'm a Lawick on Twitter, but most of my stuff is found on underjord.io. So that's underjord.io. Good luck with the spelling. It'll be in the show notes. If it's a really pretty possible. website, though. Thanks. And what about you, Alex? So I'm at a Kutmos pretty much everywhere. So that's A K O U T M O S. Luckily, I have a pretty unique last name. So a lot of the Kutmos domain names and stuff like that were available. So yeah, I'm, I'm A Kutmos at GitHub, Twitter, and other ones. But those are the two I'm primarily on. And that's also my website. Cool. I am on, I'm on Twitter at Neuter. That's K N E W T E R. And various other places, GitHub, GitLab. Most of my newer code would be on GitLab, but also most of it is private. There's some open stuff there. Anyway, so that's it for me. And and my company website is dba, dba, dba.com, I should mention. You could, uh, you could sort of keep up with me there, except for we don't update it frequently. Anyway, so thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Elixir Mix, and we'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.